You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Today we are discussing the scientific method that underlies medicine, specifically the establishment of clinical research networks. In this segment, we will focus on the results and ongoing studies of the NIH Maternal Fetal Medicine Network. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. With me today is Dr. Katherine Spong, who is Chief of the Pregnancy and Perinatology Branch of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. A graduate of the six-year honors program in medical education at the University of Missouri in Kansas City, she is also Associate Editor of the journal Obstetrics and Gynecology. Her most important title for the purpose of this segment is Program Scientist for the Maternal Fetal Medicine Unit. Welcome back, Dr. Spong. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. In the early 1970s, fetal monitoring technology escaped from the laboratory into the clinical environment. The assumption upon which fetal monitoring was based was that most mental retardation and cerebral palsy occurs from lack of oxygen during labor and therefore would be preventable. But we now know that this assumption is false. In contrast, the NIH Maternal Fetal Medicine Network is a very well-designed approach to evaluating treatments before they become the standard of care. Dr. Spong, can you tell us a little about the findings of some completed studies? For instance, can you tell us about the FOX trial? Absolutely. The FOX trial is so named because it was evaluating fetal pulse oximetry, which is looking at the oxygen saturation of the baby using a pulse oximeter, just like the kind that you see on the TV shows where the person's finger is wrapped in a Band-Aid that emits a red light. The fetal pulse oximeter actually goes into the womb through the vagina, and monitors the saturation of the baby's oxygenation by applying this probe to the baby's cheek. And the thought was that if you could use what the oxygen saturation is of the baby as an adjunct to the fetal heart rate monitor, you might be able to improve the outcome of delivery. And specifically, you might be able to reduce cesarean delivery rates. How many people were enrolled? Uh, Were there people that they attempted to do the fetal oximetry on and couldn't? Can you give us a little bit more about uh, what the practical experience of the trial uh, showed? This trial was done in a way to allow you to determine whether the knowing the saturation of the oxygen was useful in, in reducing cesarean delivery rates. So what we did was everyone got a fetal pulse oximeter, but half of the women had their values blinded or masked, and the other half, the clinicians, used them in their clinical management of the patients. Over 5,000 patients were enrolled in this trial, and these were all women with a singleton pregnancy at term. There were some cases where the oximeter could not be put on, and there were some cases where during the insertion of the oximeter, a bradycardia or a slowing of the baby's heart rate occurred that necessitated an emergency delivery. What we found in this trial was that, in fact, the use of the knowledge of the oxygen saturation of the baby did not improve the outcome. There was the same number of cesarean deliveries done whether the oxygen saturation was known or not known. There were the same number of cesarean deliveries when you had an abnormal heart rate tracing, whether or not the oxygen value was known. So it was not beneficial in reducing cesarean deliveries, and it didn't modify infant outcomes. This is quite an amazing result because it really defies common sense. One would expect that if you have a number that is indisputable as opposed to trying to read the Ouija board of a fetal monitor tracing, that it would clarify the baby situation. Is there any simple explanation for why it wasn't beneficial? Did something emerge out of the experience that was unexpected that 
would explain why it didn't live up to expectations? The expectation that it would lower cesarean rates were based on a study that had been presented and published earlier by Tom Garidi and his colleagues. And what they had found was that it lowered cesarean rates for an abnormal heart rate tracing. So when they didn't know how to interpret the tracing, that oxygen saturation helped. But in fact, Although there was this decrease in cesareans for abnormal heart rate tracings, there was an increase in the number of cesareans for dystocia, or a difficulty of the baby to come out. Um, So there was in net no change in the overall cesarean delivery rate. It may be that we're better at reading and interpreting the heart rate tracings than we had expected, (laughs) certainly as far as for delivery by cesarean, you know, this was not a successful adjunct to electronic fetal monitoring. I think that this is an example of how a common-sense idea cannot pan out when studied under the harsh light of scientific experiment. I think you're you're absolutely right. It shows that we need to be able to evaluate different technologies before they're widely implemented because sometimes what makes sense doesn't always work and doesn't help. And certainly, you know, these are very invasive things. And if a woman doesn't need to have it during labor and delivery, you know, because it's not helping, that's a good thing. There's another common sense idea that I was very intrigued by that uh, the network studied. And in fact, the idea makes so much sense, one wondered why you would even bother to study it. Yet the results were a little bit unexpected, confirming again that in terms of scientific issues, experience matters and common sense probably takes a second seat. Can you tell us a little bit about the idea about reducing premature birth in women with bacterial vaginosis or trichomonas? Can you tell us about the BVTV trial as the NIH abbreviates it? This study was undertaken to look at asymptomatic women who were diagnosed with either bacterial vaginosis or trichomonas vaginalis because in the history, if you looked at these two conditions, they've been associated with preterm birth. And when women who were at high risk, women who'd had a prior preterm delivery or women who were symptomatic with these infections, when they were treated um, in smaller studies, it suggested a benefit. So the question then is, should we screen everyone for these infections and treat them and be able to then reduce the preterm delivery rate? So these studies were undertaken, again, in asymptomatic women, women who didn't know that they had these conditions, and they were tested for them, and if they had them, they were either treated with an antibiotic, two grams of metronidazole, or a placebo. And what we found was that for the women with asymptomatic bacterial vaginosis, treatment with the antibiotic therapy was not beneficial. It did not reduce preterm delivery if you defined it at less than 37 weeks, at less than 35 weeks, or at less than 32 weeks. And it didn't improve outcome of the neonates. Treatment of asymptomatic trichomonas vaginalis was even more interesting because not only did the antibiotic therapy not improve outcome, in fact, there were higher rates of preterm delivery if in the women who received the antibiotics, significantly higher rates of preterm delivery at less than 37 weeks. And it was so remarkable, in fact, that the Independent Data Safety and Monitoring Board that monitors all clinical trials in the network stopped the study early because of this increased risk of preterm birth. Any theory about why that happened? It may be that in these women who are asymptomatic, they don't know that they have this condition, that the condition is not bothering them, that treatment with an antibiotic changes the vaginal flora to something that's actually even more harmful and increases their risk of preterm delivery. So... For me, these two trials were able to change the 
clinical practice of just routinely screening all women for these two conditions and then exposing these women to antibiotics during pregnancy and their, ch- and their babies um, and only treating women who were at high risk, those who were complaining of an infection and those women who were otherwise at high risk for preterm delivery. I suppose the expression that I don't remember in Latin, but I remember the English translation, first do no harm, uh, applied to these studies. Absolutely. And it, again, it, it was common sense to go ahead and screen these women. I mean, it made sense given the data that was out there and the known association with preterm delivery. But yet, in fact, in reality, it's not beneficial. It's, in fact, harmful. Of course, the MFM unit trials don't just give us information about therapies that do not work. (laughs) They also have confirmed that some interventions are beneficial. We're not just nihilists here. (laughs) What about the use of progesterone to prevent preterm birth in certain at-risk populations? This trial was undertaken in a specific group of women who are at very high risk for having a preterm delivery. Those are women who've had a prior preterm delivery. And they were treated with progesterone starting between 16 and 20 weeks of gestation. Um, And we used a progesterone called 17-alpha-hydroxyprogesterone caproate, which is an intramuscular injection. They received this injection of either the intervention or a placebo weekly until 37 weeks or delivery. Again, the women and their providers didn't know what they were getting. It was a double-mass placebo-controlled trial with the primary outcome of preterm delivery or delivery at less than 37 weeks. And what we found was that in this very high-risk group of women, uh, progesterone therapy actually did reduce the rate of preterm delivery uh, less than 37 weeks, less than 35 weeks, and less than 32 weeks. And perhaps equally importantly, it reduced the rates of preterm delivery both in African-American women as well as non-African-American women, since African-American women have a much higher rate of preterm birth. When you looked at the outcomes of the babies, there were lower rates of neonatal death and respiratory distress and significantly lower rates of intraventricular hemorrhage or bleeding into the brain and necrotizing enterocolitis. Who were the uh, at-risk patients that uh, the progesterone was given to? I think the group was really rather specifically defined. It was specifically defined as women who'd had a prior spontaneous preterm birth. And in fact, for this trial, we had to have documentation that it was a prior spontaneous preterm birth. So either a birth certificate or medical records documenting that it was a prior preterm birth. The network did two aspirin studies in an effort to prevent preeclampsia in both uh, the general population and high-risk women. And my understanding is that the network uh, studies concluded that aspirin was not of uh, real benefit. However, I just had occasion to look this up. The Cochrane reviews out of Britain are very emphatic that aspirin does prevent preeclampsia. Can you reconcile these two views? Right. So the network undertook two studies, one of low-dose aspirin in nulliparous women, looking at a little over 3,000 women. In that study, there was a 26% reduction in the rate of preeclampsia in the women who were on the aspirin, but it was not statistically significant. In the high-risk aspirin study, this is a study, again, of low-dose aspirin in women who are at risk for preeclampsia, meaning women who either had pregestational diabetes or chronic hypertension or multiple fetal gestations. We studied over 2,500 women and did not find a reduction in preeclampsia. I think one of the things to realize is that it's difficult to get a significant result when you're looking at specific outcomes. There's a study that's currently under review that is called the Paris Collaboration. And they have taken the data from all of the individual patients from all of the studies that have been done on aspirin. 
and pooled them all together and done actual data analysis using all of So it's different than a meta-analysis where you're using the conglomerate data. They used the individual patient data. And what they found was that aspirin did actually result in a 10% reduction in preeclampsia. Now, none of these individual studies would be able to show a 10% reduction. And in fact, I don't even know if that's clinically significant, if you can clinically translate that. Um, But they did combine both low-risk and high-risk women and showed a 10% reduction when treatment with uh, low-dose aspirin. Has that study been published? It's under review, and as I understand, it was uh, tentatively accepted with some pending changes. I want to thank Dr. Catherine Spong, program scientist for the Maternal Fetal Medicine Unit, of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions about this program, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.